Well, this morning for our sermon, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 42, verses 10 through 17. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, that's where to turn. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 10 to 17. I'll read the text first. I'll pray for God's blessing after that. Now, just as a by way of preliminaries, um, you may have been, if you were here three years ago in the summer, we did a little uh, mini-series in Isaiah starting at chapter 40, getting into 42, verse 9. And so we're just picking right up uh, for the, the time that Greg's on his sabbatical and I'm preaching. I'll be taking us just deeper into Isaiah from there, uh, getting into uh, chapter 44. So let's read our text, Isaiah 42, verses 10 to 17. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the, inha- let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself and your salvation to us so richly. And we pray that you would also give us even more. Give us your spirit this morning to open our ears, to hear these truths that we so desperately need. We pray for your spirit to open my mouth, to speak clearly and faithfully, to represent you well and to do the work in our midst that you want to do through your word. We pray that you'd lift up Christ in our midst and that you would do powerful things of conversion and sanctification and preservation in our souls. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know the experience of visiting a website that clearly has not gotten any attention for quite some time. Maybe it's some company website that feels like a blast from 2008 or a blog that hasn't seen a new post since 2012. And if you ever visit a page like that, it's always kind of a depressing feeling. It's kind of like the digital equivalent of some some blighted, old, dilapidated warehouse in an urban setting that's just this ugly eyesore. And here's something else that happens when you visit that old website. 
you immediately lose interest in a company or organization or band or school or blog or whatever it is. In fact, there's probably no better way to signal irrelevance than to have a creaky old unupdated website. Because inactivity communicates impotence. As soon as you see that old page, you know, these people are not going to do anything for me. They're not going to get anything done. They're not going to add any value to my life. They are an irrelevant relic of the past. They're probably defunct and not doing business anymore. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see that the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, who's also the creator of all and the Lord of history, is entirely opposite from that useless organization with their long, dormant website. In fact, it's quite to the contrary. He is the God who does new things in history. And in doing these new things, things that have been never done before and things that have never been done since, things that no one else has the capacity to do, that He supremely displays His greatness. And that he supremely draws out our praise in response. So the message of our text in short is this. The Lord alone does new works. So to him alone belongs fresh praise. The Lord alone does new works. So to him alone belongs fresh praise. And you may have heard those two halves of that sentence. That's what we're going to look at. Those are our two sections of the sermon, but we'll look at them in reversed order. So first his praise and then the works that are the basis of that praise. First of all, then the Lord's fresh praise in verses 10 to 12. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. These three verses are a call to praise, and they signal a beginning of a new section in Isaiah. This section, which runs into chapter 44, this is what we're going to cover over the next several weeks that I'm in Isaiah with, uh, in these Sunday mornings. It's about the Lord doing a new redeeming work in history. And back when we were in Isaiah earlier, again, three summers ago, starting in chapter 40, verse 1, going through 42, 9, we saw that chapter 40 is the biggest turning point in Isaiah. And it comes on the heels of the Lord finally announcing to Judah that their persistent sin will result in the ruin of Babylonian exile. It's immediately following that in chapter 39 that chapter 40 comes. And Isaiah comes out strong there with a word of divine comfort for Israel. And really from there on, the whole rest of the book is about why the exile will not be the last word. The Lord isn't done with His covenant nation, but He'll perform an act of redemption that will be like a new exodus. In fact, it will be so grand and so final, and so encompassing, that it will affect not just Israel, but all the nations of the world. Isaiah peers over the centuries of history, 
even into the very end of all things. The new heavens and the new earth, that phrase you may be familiar with in the end of Revelation actually comes out of Isaiah 65, as well as the dreadful waste of eternal judgment that faces God's enemies. Even last week in Mark 9, we heard Jesus quoting from Isaiah 66, 24 about hell. So in this section of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, Yahweh, the Lord, presents a long and complex argument to prove that he alone is Lord of history. And that unlike the false gods of the pagans who have ensnared Israel, he can and will act decisively to accomplish his will, both to save and to judge. And more than that, he also introduces a unique agent through whom he will do this work. In chapters 42 to 53, he's known as the suffering servant. He'll serve the Lord's saving purposes as a humble servant, even to the point of giving his own life as a ransom for sinners. In that climactic fourth servant passage in Isaiah 53. And then in the last section there, in chapters 56 to 66, this agent reappears as an anointed conqueror. He's coming in a robe dipped in blood to restore his people and conquer his enemies. So this figure, both in his function as a humble servant and a sufferer, and in his function as a mighty conqueror, the New Testament authors will later identify as Jesus Christ. So in the portion of Isaiah we looked at three years ago, chapter 40, verse 1 through 42, 9, we saw the Lord proving that his declaration of comfort to Israel is sure and certain. And all the weight of that argument comes from God's supremacy. He is utterly unlike the idols. His grandeur over creation makes the nations, as we hear in chapter 40, verse 15, like a drop from a bucket accounted as the dust on the scales. And because of his greatness, he's able to preserve and refresh and support and save his people. He can orchestrate all of history. And one thing he'll do is appoint one from the east, he says in 41 verse 2. A pagan king who's going to run through the Middle East like invincible Mario. And, and he'll have resounding victories who pave the way for Israel to return from exile. So Israel need not fear because God is with them. He's still with them even after he sends them into the judgment of exile. Chapter 41 verses 17 to 20 told us about how God, like like streams of water entering the desert, God will give life and renewal to his people who are now a spiritual wasteland. And then in 42 verses 1 to 9, the end of that section we covered, we meet that agent through whom the Lord and all of his redeeming work will operate, the servant, the one in whom the Lord's soul delights. And in those verses, we see that the servant, even by by means of his gentleness and patience and humility, will be God's agent of bringing justice to Israel and to all the nations. He'll establish justice in the earth. He'll bring light to the blind salvation to those who are far off, a covenant for those who don't yet know the Lord, and liberation for the prisoners. 
And through all of this, it becomes clear that it's not just Judah's exile in view. Of course, the historical event that kicks off this section of Isaiah is a promise. Yes, Babylon will take you into exile. But as we read God's response to the exile, we start realizing it's not just Judah going to Babylon that's in view. In fact, the whole world is blind and enslaved and far from God in the ruinous curse of sin. Ever since our first parents rebelled in the garden, We've all been languishing east of Eden. We've all been in exile. And the servant will bring the Lord's deliverance from our greatest enemies and from our deepest problems. So with all that context in view, we're going to see here in verses 10 to 12, three aspects of the Lord's fresh praise. And the first one is the beginning of verse 10. It's a response to his work. The Lord's fresh praise is a response to to his work. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. It's interesting that Isaiah calls for a new song. What does that mean? Does that mean we're constantly composing new hymns and praise songs all the time to God? Well, that might be a a good implication of this. But newness here means freshness or responsiveness to new circumstances. It's a reaction to what the Lord is doing in history. Again, What we just saw was the redeeming work of the servant. And he's going to further describe that work in verses 13 to 17. Even if you look back in the last verse of the servant section, verse 9, the Lord is making sure to stress newness there. He says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. New things from the Lord call for new praise to the Lord. And as we'll see in a few moments, the fact that the God of Israel can claim that He does new things in history is a deeply important claim about Him. At this point, the lesson for us is that our praise to God is freshest and most sincere and most free when it comes as a response to our reflection on His real tangible acts of salvation. So we should reflect on God's real acts of salvation. Learn the stories of the Old Testament. Meditate on the glory of Jesus coming in the Gospels. Wander through the annals of church history, learning the stories and the people and the triumphs of God's grace, even through the darkest valleys. This is part of what we're trying to do in our weekly newsletter. If you watch these videos in the newsletter looking at some cases of revival in church history to stir up our appreciation for God's mighty works of salvation in the past. And don't forget the stories of God's grace in our own lives. Remember your conversion, how the Spirit brought you to believe in Jesus. Remember your baptism when you testified of your faith in Christ and He sealed to you His precious promises in the Gospel. Remember those times of refining and preservation and sanctification. Yes, even through the darkest valleys. And as we remember and as we reflect, we respond in ever new praise. But perhaps we're not doing this. Perhaps our praise is stale because we're not doing that. We're not filling our minds with the reminders of God's works of salvation. And you might feel that when we come even to gather and sing. uh, It can feel like there's no reserves, no reservoir in our hearts from which that's coming. Maybe his salvation has become to us something that's far off, something academic, something abstract, 
Something that we know about factually, but there's that newness that's missing of a response to his work of salvation. Oh, may God stir up in us once again a sense of his goodness and mercy to sinners. And may it ever be the prayer of our hearts, like the psalmist says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So the second aspect then of the Lord's fresh praise is the rest of verse 10 through verse 11. It is for the whole world. The Lord's fresh praise is for the whole world. It says, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands, goes on, talks about the deserts, the cities, these villages, Kedar Selah, the top of the mountains. Now we hear a lot of location references here. This word coastlands means islands. And so it would refer to all those distant shorelines across the sea, all the land masses across the sea. Kedar and Selah are towns in the Gentile areas in the desert east of Israel's territory. And to make sense of this reference, you have to put yourself in Judah's territory. If you may have a map in your head of where Judah is, where Israel's territory is, Palestine is a thin strip of land that's oriented north-south. And uh, it has the Mediterranean Sea on its west, and it has the vast Arabian Desert, of course, across the Jordan River on its east. So the references in verses 10 to 12 span all the way from the distant shores across the sea on that one side, and the sailors who do their business on the sea, all the way to the east beyond Israel's land in the other direction. It would be like us Californians saying, from the islands and distant shores of the Pacific to Reno and Vegas and points beyond. And then we also have a range of elevations. We have all the way from sea level to the mountaintop. So it's like us saying, from the bottom of Death Valley to the peak of Mount Whitney. That's a poetic way of saying everywhere. Just as verse 10 said, from the ends of the earth, everywhere. The Lord is worthy of praise from all around the world. He is Israel's covenant Lord, but he is no provincial deity. He is the Lord of all, who created all and governs all and deserves praise from all and will one day win for himself praise from all. This is the kind of Old Testament text that lies in the background of the New Testament call to missions. The gospel of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus is good news for all the nations. Wherever the cursed and sin-stained sons of Adam have made their habitation, far as the curse is found. The Lord is saying, let those people in those places praise me. And this is the glorious outcome of the missionary task for which Christ has commissioned his church. One day God will be praised in every nation, in every part of the world, for his saving work through the suffering servant. The third and final aspect here of the Lord's new praise then is in verse 12. It's a reflection of his glory. It is a reflection of his glory. It says, let them give glory to the Lord and declare, the, declare his praise in the coastlands. So just like verse 10 called for praise, verse 12 mirrors this and, and repeats the call to praise, but it expands the concept that nations should give glory to the Lord. And the Hebrew there for glory is weightiness. That's what glory means, weightiness. God is heavy. He's majestic. He's important. Important things are heavy, not light. 
high quality items are heavy, not light. Matters that deserve consideration are heavy, not light. Opinions that deserve to be heard are heavy, not light. And so it is with the Lord. When we praise Him, we're recognizing that He's heavy. And as the verse goes on to say, we declare His praise. We express the intrinsic majesty and worthiness of His eternal nature. But again, we're not just praising His glory in the abstract. We're praising it and declaring it and magnifying it because of how He has shown it in His saving works. Because of how the servant Christ has displayed the glory of God. Therefore, we respond by magnifying and declaring the glory of God. There is no clearer way to see the praiseworthy character of God than in His redeeming work in Jesus. That's exactly what we saw in Ephesians and what we sang about. In Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14, this rich litany of saving blessings from the triune God. What's the repeated punctuation that Paul gives to the praise of His glory? To the praise of His glorious grace. His salvation is an exercise of His grace. And His grace displays His glory. And His glory demands our praise. So we praise Him. So we've seen that the Lord's new praise springs from the work of the servant in verses 1 to 9. And now we're going to look at verses 13 to 17 and we'll see God describing the same redeeming work but using a new set of images. So let's turn there and look at in verses 13 to 17 the Lord's new works. The Lord's new works. Again, we have three aspects to consider regarding the Lord's new works that merit His praise. The first is in verses 13 to 14. It is a real and sudden change. It is a real and sudden change. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. And he says, this is quoting him. For a long time I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. So verse 13 uses warfare imagery for two reasons. The first is that Yahweh, the I am, is going to war against the false gods, his enemies, who are not. This whole section in Isaiah, especially chapters 40 to 48, feature an ongoing argument against the impostors who usurp God and try to steal his worship, the false gods of the nations. By working deliverance for his people, the Lord will strike powerfully against those impotent gods of wood and stone and metal. The second reason for this warrior uh, imagery in verse 13 is also the reason he, he uses childbirth imagery in verse 14, which is simply to give a picture of a sudden and dramatic cry as something climactic and very new happens. In verse 13, it's the war cry at the point of battle. And in verse 14, it's a mother's anguished cry in that key climactic moment of delivery. For any among us who have delivered children or who have been up close for the nine months of gestation and birth, we've experienced how a long and slow process of growth quite suddenly gives way to this drastic turning point. 
And that's what God is talking about when he says in the, the beginning of verse 14, he says, for a long time I held my peace. Saying, look, in history, for a long time it just felt like nothing was happening. To the uninformed observer, it might look like the Lord wasn't doing much for Israel. It might look like the website was dormant. After all, he's going to let them go into exile. He's just told them that. But he says, nevertheless, the time is coming when sudden and wonderful things are going to spring from heaven. Think of Israel's 400 years in Egypt before the exodus. Or think of the 400 silent years preceding Christ's coming. There was no word from God, no prophecy for generation after generation. Until suddenly, in the fullness of time, here's Jesus. And suddenly there's a rapid swarm of crucial events transpiring as the Gospels document for us. But here's what's so special about the suddenness and the concreteness of the Lord's work in history. Throughout, again, this section in Isaiah where God is making his argument against the the idols of false gods. An important strand of his argument is that he is utterly unlike the idols because he actually does things in history. He actually controls history. And this might be something that we fail to appreciate about pagan deities because we haven't grown up in a pagan society that worships them. But all of the gods, of all of the pantheons, of all of the nations of the world are utterly unlike God because they are continuous with the created order. They're basically just super creatures. They're like us, but bigger and better and greater. They're floating in the stream of history just like us. Even their worshipers do not claim that they can change or shape or guide history. And so for this reason, pagan peoples always end up with a cyclical view of history. Because nothing ever really changes. Man and beast and kingdoms and nations and weather and the gods are all just swirling in never-ending cycles of action and reaction. The God of the Bible is entirely different. All of the pagan creation myths have the gods basically rearranging stuff. And we never really know where the stuff came from. And if that sounds silly to you, how could anyone ever believe that? The same goes for the Big Bang and spontaneous generation of life and Darwinistic evolution. It's a pagan creation myth. And the same problem. Where did the stuff come from? It all comes from processes that are in creation, that are continuous with material creation. But in the beginning, God created The God of the Bible made all things from nothing. He eternally pre-existed all that isn't God. Which means that He exists on an entirely different plane from everything He's made. He's eternal. He is not in time. He's not experiencing time. He's above it. He transcends and stands above all of creation in the flow of history. Again, nobody else ever claims such things about their God. The pagan gods are swept along in the circular whirlpool of history, but Yahweh is the creator of all and the sovereign Lord of history. He guides it from a starting point to a finishing point. And there are events in the middle that are leading toward that finishing point. Because of him, history is going somewhere. It's actually moving toward a sovereignly appointed conclusion. 
And it's against that comparative backdrop that we can start to truly appreciate the weightiness of the Lord saying here, I am doing something new. False gods can't do new things. And even though we're not in a pagan culture that worships a pantheon of pagan gods overtly, we nevertheless find ourselves in a rapidly secularizing Western society where the knowledge of the transcendent God of the Bible is fast receding. And you know what? The false gods of 21st century America spin in cycles too. They don't change history either. I believe as we look out and survey modern life, what we're seeing is increasing disillusionment and restlessness because as a society, as a culture, we've lost sight of the transcendent creator who stands above history and reigns over his creation. Everything is process. Ever-changing and yet never getting anywhere. We're seeing a profound sense of disorientation in our culture and people are drawn to maybe two tempting responses, either on the one hand, throwing ourselves totally into self-indulgent pleasure or grasping for something that seems solid and seems like it's going somewhere. Could be progressive politics or scientific and technological advancement or a political strongman who seems to have the answers. But our main concern today is not our society, It's our hearts. And here, God is prodding our hearts to test whether we're trusting created things which can't move history but are just swept along with it. Can you see how cyclical and ultimately empty the 21st century American gods are? The gods that tempt us. Science discovers natural processes, but the processes just keep going on. Theories rise and theories fall to be replaced by new theories. And we even invent new technologies that maybe bring marginal added value to our life. But for what end? What really is changing? Politics. The Democrats win the White House. The Republicans win the midterm. Eventually, the Republicans will retake the White House and the Democrats will win the midterms. Meanwhile, the whole process is saturated with soul-sucking, petty squabbling. I'm not condemning any involvement in politics, of course, or any of these things. These are fine things to be involved in. I'm, I'm talking about using them as gods. Where does it lead? Markets rise and fall. Nations become wealthy and nations decline. We climb career ladders and eventually retire and sit on an old dusty chair and watch TV and die. We acquire new and exciting possession after new and exciting possession, but nothing really changes, does it? Experiences, travel, popularity, fame, sports, hobbies, even family. What I'm trying to say is that all the places we're tempting to place our trust and ultimate affections that aren't the creator, but the created things, all of them are just flowing through the river of time and history with us. They aren't steering the ship. They aren't leading to any kind of goal of history. And if you've ever given yourself over to these gods, you've probably felt some sense of emptiness and purposelessness of where they're leading you. You felt those diminishing returns where you you need a bigger and bigger dose to keep your high. They just don't deliver on their promises. But the servant in whom God's soul delights, Christ, 
is inviting us by faith into a new story. A story that leads to the end of history as heaven merges into earth in a new creation. That is where his story is going. Friends, isn't it wonderful that the Lord is actually driving history somewhere in our lives? We're not bobbing forever on the open sea in a raft. We're steaming in a ship, a powered ship, to a wonderful destination. The Lord of history does new things. Most of all, most importantly, what he's done in sending Jesus Christ for our redemption. The second aspect of the Lord's new work is in verses 15 to 16. It is an all-sufficient return from exile. It is an all-sufficient return from exile. He says, I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Now, some people read verse 15 as a prediction of judgment. Uh, he lays waste the hills and dries things up, etc. I think if we read it together with verse 16, the united picture is one of God rearranging landscapes and drying up rivers. And by the way, this reference to turning rivers into islands may sound weird to us, but just think about what happens when rivers start drying up. You just start seeing these little islands emerge. If it's ever drought time and you look over the American River, you start seeing new islands showing up in the river. So it's just a picture of drying up water bodies. Now, why is God doing all this? He's engineering a return from exile, and he's doing all that's necessary to make a way for his people If verse 13 portrayed the Lord as a warrior, verses 15 to 16 portray him as an army engineer who's leveling hills and redirecting streams to make a clear path for the return of the exiled remnant. And verse 15 pictures these people as very needy. They're blind. And to make matters worse, they don't even know the way. They don't even know where they're going. They could never make it home on their own. But... The Lord will meet every need with this powerful self-sufficiency. And remember, return from exile is the repeated image that the Lord uses here in Isaiah because that's the presenting issue at this point in history. But ultimately, he's pointing us far beyond what we see in the return from exile in the Old Testament under Ezra and Nehemiah. He's pointing us to a spiritual return from exile. And that one that's not only for Israel, but for all the nations who are called to praise the Lord for his work in verses 10 to 12. And the enemy that brought us into that exile was not the Babylonian army. It was the powerful forces of sin and death and Satan. It's a return from the wastelands east of Eden to the place of blessing in the presence of the Lord, in his place. This is the end to which God's drama of history is aiming for his people. Blindness is a familiar motif in Isaiah. It stretches all the way back to the prophet's commission. Remember when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in chapter 6? He has this vision of God himself. And in, chapters, in verses 9 and 10, this, this idea of blindness and deafness starts emerging as a picture of the spiritual deadness of the Lord's covenant people. They can't sense him. They can't see him. 
They can't tell His greatness and His holiness and His worthiness to be trusted and loved and obeyed. That's why they keep sinning. That's their fundamental problem. Is this a vivid picture of how sin distorts our ability to know God? That's the way blindness functions in Isaiah. And in next week's text, verses 18 to 25, we'll see the Lord accusing His people, His servant Israel, of being spiritually blind and deaf. And so it's for that reason that in verse 7, earlier, 42.7, one of the servant's works was to open the eyes that are blind. And in verse 16 here, he proclaims complete provision for the spiritual blindness that caused them to wander so far from him. I will lead the blind, and he says, I will turn the darkness into light. The Lord's salvation through the servant is light to those who are in darkness. And it is a way back to God for those who have no hope of finding it. And both of these things, Jesus did not hesitate to claim for himself. John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the light for those lost in the darkness of sin and death. And to believe in him is to walk in the light that is life. And in the same way, in John 14, 6, he claims to be the paths that they have not known when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one returns from exile east of Eden except through me. This morning, if you know that you are far from God, you are lost in the worship of vain idols, giving your heart and your obedience to created things rather than the Creator, Jesus is speaking to you today a kind word of invitation. He's saying, come to me. Have light. Come to me. Have a highway back to God. Have restored fellowship with your Maker and Ruler. Have blessings forever at His right hand. The servant is humbly saying today, come, I've done it all for you. I'm your all-sufficient supply. Come back from exile. And in verse 16, we hear that the Lord does these mighty works because He won't forsake His people. He says, I do these things and I do not forsake them. His promises to Abraham to bless all the nations through Abraham's seed are bulletproof and ironclad. His covenant commitment to His people is the basis of all of their hope here in this moment of Isaiah's prophecy. And it's the basis of all of our hope because in the new covenant of Christ, we hear God calling us, My people. They are my people. And he says the same to us. I will not forsake you. Salvation is entirely of the Lord. He does everything necessary for our redemption because he knows that we're blind and helpless. He knows how far off from him we are. He's provided in Jesus the all-sufficient atonement that we need to be forgiven and cleansed. He's brought us under the preaching of the gospel. He's opened and given sight to our blinded eyes to see Christ in truth. He's given us the gift of faith by His Spirit. Beloved friends, He has done it all. The third aspect of the Lord's new work is in verse 17. It is a shaming of idol worshipers. It is a shaming of idol worshipers. He says, They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols who say to metal images, you are our gods. We've already seen how the Lord's assertive 
act in history, in time and space, proves his supremacy over the false gods. And in verse 17, the chickens come home to roost. The false gods, for a time now, they have their appeal. Molech or Baal or Asherah or career or wealth or politics. They all offer grand promises that if we give our lives to them, they will meet our needs. But they never actually do it. They never actually do anything. They're blind and deaf and mute and powerless. We hear about this in Psalm 115 verses 4 to 8. That not only are the false gods deaf and blind and mute and powerless, but they make their worshipers be the same way. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them will become like them. So do all who trust in them. The Lord alone gets things done. And all throughout Scripture, we see in the pattern of His work, we see this pattern of salvation through judgment. He acts both to save and to judge at the same time. Think of the Exodus. In the plagues and in the Red Sea crossing, He was saving His people and bringing judgment on His enemies, Pharaoh and His armies. Salvation and judgment. And the return from exile. Israel's remnant will receive deliverance and Babylon will be smashed up by the Persians. Salvation and judgment. And so it will be in the second coming of Christ when He comes to complete our rescue and to return us as people to Edenic blessing, He will dramatically shame the false gods. It is precisely by working sovereignly in history, by doing the things that He can do that the false gods can't do, that He will put them and their worshipers to shame. And mercifully today, He's giving us a preview into the future. He's telling us where history is going. And those of us who are buying stock in carved idols, as it were, need to see that that market is going to crash and will be devastated when that day comes. On what foundation are you building your life? When this reckoning comes, will you be put to shame? Will the treasures in which you delight fall into the holy flames of judgment? As a student of my own heart, I can tell you that there is great power in seeing the idols that tempt me through this perspective. Seeing this broad view, seeing the complete futility of where they lead and the shamefulness that will be exposed one day when God completes His work provides one of the strongest means of disenchantment from these things. They don't look so good anymore. What would be more foolish and tragic than to give our hearts to created things that can't even save or help us now and in the future they'll leave us completely naked and exposed and ashamed when the Lord of history draws the story to a close. The Lord alone does new works, so to Him alone belongs fresh praise. God has acted and will act decisively in history to save for himself a people for his own namesake through Christ the servant from all the nations of the earth. The false gods can't do anything. They're just swept along in the tides of time and history. The Lord alone acts. He does real things. He changes things. He guides things. He shapes things. And in fact, he's acting 
and doing everything necessary for His people's redemption from sin. And so as His people, we praise Him. Not just because we intellectually know in the abstract that He is good and praiseworthy, we praise Him as an ever-new, ever-refreshed response to His works of mercy and grace in history and in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we praise You. We recognize the blindness of our sinful state. We recognize the lostness and the distance that was so natural to all of us. And we confess that none but You could save. And that there's no aspect of salvation that we could have contributed. It's all of You. And so we praise You. We give You glory. Because of Your saving love. Because of Your power because of your faithfulness, because of your supremacy over all that exists, because it all exists by your will and by your good pleasure. We pray that you'd continue to cause our hearts to meditate on the beauty of salvation, to deepen our response of praise. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ and is still caught in the trap of false gods, we pray that you would even today bring light and liberation and covenant membership to them. Bring them to Jesus in faith. We pray all this in his name. Amen.